0: One day, Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armour-bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men, among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. He was son of Ichabod's brother, Ahitub, son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. No one was aware that Jonathan had left. On each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Sene. One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, the other to the south toward Giba. Jonathan said to his young armour-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by a few. Do all that you have in mind, his armour bearer said, Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. jonathan said, Come on then, we will cross over toward them and let them see us. If they say to us, Wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armour bearer, Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armour bearer, Climb up after me, the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armour bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armour bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armour-bearer killed some twenty men in an area of about half an acre. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah in Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Then Saul said to the men who were with him, Muster the forces and see who has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armor bearer who were not there. Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God. At that time it was with the Israelites. While Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Paul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp, went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. So on that day the Lord saved Israel and the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. Now the Israelites were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies, so none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods, and there was honey on the ground. When they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out, yet no one put his hand to his mouth, because they feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath, so he reached out the end of the staff that was in his hand, and dipped it into the honeycomb. He raised his hand to his mouth and his eyes brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food today. That is why the men are faint. Jonathan said, My father has made trouble for the country. See how my eyes brightened when I tasted a little of this honey? How much better it would have been if the men had eaten today some of the plunder They took from their enemies. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? That day, after the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Ajalon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder and taking sheep, cattle and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, Look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. You have broken faith, he said. Roll a large stone over here at once. Then he said, Go out among the men and tell them. Each of you bring me your cattle and sheep and slaughter them here and eat them. Do not sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. So everyone brought his ox at night and slaughtered it there. Then Saul built an altar to the Lord. It was the first time he had done this. Saul said, Let us go down and pursue the Philistines by night and plunder them till dawn and let us not leave one of them alive. Do whatever seems best to you, they replied. But the priest said, Let us inquire of God here. So Saul asked God, Shall I go down and pursue the Philistines? Will you give them into Israel's hand? But God did not answer him that day. Saul therefore said, Come here all you who are leaders of the army, And let us find out what sin has been committed today. As surely as the Lord who rescues Israel lives, even if the guilt lies with my son Jonathan, he must die. But not one of them said a word. Saul then said to all the Israelites, You stand over there. I and Jonathan my son will stand over here. Do what seems best to you, they replied. Then Saul prayed to the Lord, the God of Israel, Why have you not answered your servant today? If the fault is in me or my son Jonathan, respond with Urim. But if the men of Israel are at fault, respond with Sumin. Jonathan and Saul were taken by lot, and the men were cleared. Saul said, Cast the lot between me and Jonathan, my son. And Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you have done. So Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the end of my staff, and now I must die. Saul said, May God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you do not die, Jonathan. But the men said to Saul, Should Jonathan die, who he who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel? Never. As surely the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall to the ground, for he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. Then Saul stopped pursuing the Philistines, and they withdrew to their own land, after Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side. Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, and the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. He fought valiantly and defeated the Amalekites, delivering Israel from the hands of those who had plundered them. Saul's sons were Jonathan, Ishvi and Malkishua. The name of his older daughter was Merab, and that of, his, of the younger was Mikal. His wife's name was Ahinoam, daughter of Ahimaaz. The name of the commander of Saul's army was Abner, son of Ner, and Ner was Saul's uncle. Saul's father Kish and Abner's father Ner were sons of Abiel. All the days of Saul there was bitter war with the Philistines, and whenever Saul saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service. This is the word of the Lord
1: thanks for reading meredith that was a long passage you've done well well kids are kids (laughs) i'm sorry (laughs) when i read the bible with the kids i'm saying kids open up your bibles congregation parish please keep your bibles open Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much that we can have your word open, we can read it, we can understand it, and we can be encouraged and also challenged. And so as we uh, explore the faith of Jonathan and the faithlessness of Saul this morning, may we uh, put our faith in Jesus, who lived the life we can't and died the death we deserve. For we ask in his name. Amen. At an early age, Adoniram Judson became convinced that Asia... Uh, with its idolatrous myriads was the most important field in the world for missionary effort. Uh, you see it was the early 1800s and Asia was still largely unevangelized uh, and So when he graduated from theological college uh, at around twenty three years old, he left America for Asia uh, with his wife, Anne, uh, after being kicked out of India and losing a child uh, by miscarriage on a ship they end up in a country called Burma, which is what we now know today as Myanmar. Uh, Now, Burma was a very religious country at that time and still is. Uh, There wasn't yet one Christian in the entire country of Burma of millions. Uh, You see, the Burmese people were devout Buddhists, uh, so much so that if anyone converted out of Buddhism at that time, they would be sentenced to death by order of the emperor of Burma. Uh, now, anyone looking at the situation like this uh, will think that it's a futile, a pointless effort to go and convert devout Buddhists to Christianity. The emperor was unyielding, and so what was the point? I mean, even some Christians at that time were discouraging the Judsons from going to Burma uh, because it was said, and I quote, uh, the Burmese were impermeable to Christian evangelism. Uh, but the just Judson's didn't see it that way. They read their Bibles, and they know that God is saving a people for himself, a people from every nation and tribe and language and tongue. Uh, God will save people so long as the gospel was preached. And the word of God went out, even to such uh, people like the Burmese, who some Christians believe were impermeable to Christian evangelism. And so in the face of such hostility, And the discouragement of even of some Christians back in America, despite not knowing even one Christian in the country of Burma at that time, in going to a country with no Christian community that had been established, no church existed, despite not even having any friends or relatives and not even knowing the language, they were determined to go to this foreign country, this idolatrous country, with the love of Jesus, to share the love of Jesus to the Burmese people. For they believed that God will save so long as they were faithful. And so when they landed, they didn't have an easy time. They shared their lives with them and preached the gospel to them, but it seemed to make very little difference. They had another child who would end up dying at eight months old. They studied the Burmese language 12 hours a day, and even began to translate the Bible into the Burmese language, yet Judson was imprisoned and accused of being a British spy. He was confined for 21 months and condemned to die, and if it wasn't because the British intervened, he would have died, but thankfully, miraculously, he was freed. In a situation like this, it would have been easy for the Judson's to look at their circumstance and the situation that they found themselves in and lose heart. It could have destroyed their faith, and it could have caused them to lose all hope in the gospel. And I suspect if we found ourselves in a situation like that, some of us would have lost hope and maybe have even given up on Christ But it didn't for the Judsons. They persevered. They looked to God to save and not to their situation and despair. They kept their faith and trusted in God and stayed in Burma until Adoniram's death some 38 years later. And even though it took almost six years before one person became a Christian and another six years for another 11 to become Christians, after he died, a Burmese government survey of the land revealed that 210,000 Burmese people had become Christians. You see, friends, the Judson's trusted in God despite their circumstances, and God used them. The Judson's kept believing that God can and will save, and God did, not just one or two people, but thousands upon thousands of people because of their faith in God. And in today's passage, there's another kind of saving That needs to take place, but the same faith is required. Another type of saving that needs to happen for the people of Israel, but the same God to do the saving. And what we'll see in today's passage is the story of two different men, two very different men who respond to the one and same situation, but they respond very differently. These two men are both Israelites. These two men have the same blood running through their veins. These two men belong to the same royal family. But of these two men, though impressive as they are in their own right, they couldn't be more diametrically opposed to one another. On the one hand, you have the son of the king, the prince of Israel, Jonathan. And on the other hand, you have God's anointed, the first king of Israel, Saul, and and so with Jonathan on one hand and Saul on the other hand, who will be found faithful? Who will be found faithless? And so what's the situation that Saul and Jonathan, Jonathan find themselves in? Well, to understand the situation, we need to understand what happened last week in, in 1 Samuel chapter 13. And the situation there is not great, is it? And you might remember that the that the Philistines have gathered their troops of 3,000 chariots and thousands and thousands of soldiers. They're ready for battle. They've, they've sent their raiding parties throughout Israel. There's, there isn't a blacksmith in all of the land of Israel. The Israelites, on the other hand, are fearing for their lives. They see this great army right before them and they scatter into hiding. Saul's army, in fact, dwindles from 3,000 men to 600. Uh, and apart from Saul and Jonathan... No one has a sword or a spear in their hand. So the situation looks pretty bleak, doesn't it? How could Israel get out of this mess? The situation is not a pretty one. The odds are stacked against them. The chances of winning this battle is is virtually zilch. I mean, what would you do in a situation like that? Well, the passage tells us what two men... Did And how these two men responded to this one and same situation. And so let's now look at how they responded. Jonathan first and then Saul. Verse 1 begins with Jonathan. So let's have have a look at his response to this grave situation that he finds himself in. What does he do in verse 1? One day Jonathan's son of Saul said to his young armour bearer, Come, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side but he didn't tell his father. Now you might be wondering whether Jonathan is being brave or being stupid. Uh, somehow he thinks that the two of them can defy, they defeat an entire Philistine outpost all by themselves with no help and no support and no knowledge of his father the king or the army of Israel. Hey, it's a, a bit like this picture on the screen. Uh, this guy's hanging... Off a towel. <laughs> and there's a fine line, isn't there, between bravery and stupidity. So is that Jonathan? But interestingly, the Bible's telling us that it's neither. Jonathan's not being brave or stupid, actually. He's actually being faithful. We see this in verse 6. Jonathan said to his young armor-bearer, come. Let's go over to the outpost, and of those uncircumcised men, perhaps, here we see the faith of Jonathan, perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. You see, Jonathan wasn't being stupid after all. In fact, he wasn't even being brave. He was simply trusting in the God who can save, in the God who will save if he desires and wants to save. Nothing can stop God from doing that, whether by many or by few. God can save. Whether Jonathan storms the outpost with an army or by himself with his armor bearer, God can save. This is the outworking and the display of the faith of Jonathan in the God who can save. That is, whatever the situation, whatever the circumstances you find yourself in, it's irrelevant. The question is, do you trust God in that moment? Will you trust and believe that God can save? Do you look at the situation and lose heart, or do you look to God and burn with hope? Well, with true faith comes action. And for Jonathan, that meant climbing up the Philistine outpost and fighting the enemies of God. And that's exactly what Jonathan does. Verse 13, Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor-bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor-bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. The ratio was 1 to 10. 1 to 10. And they were victorious. When the Judson's went to Burma, they didn't know what God would do. And the sort of impact that they would make. They saw only to serve faithfully and left the results to God. And you know what? Judson's lasting legacy wasn't just 210,000 converts in 1850. Judson had left the Burmese people with a Bible in their own language and a Burmese English dictionary to go with it, which is still used today. And 160 years on, the Bible translated by Judson is still the standard Bible in Myanmar today. And in a similar way, Jonathan's act of faith wasn't just defeating these 20 Philistines at this outpost. Its impact sent panic throughout the armies of the Philistines, which caused them to start killing each other. Verse 15, They then panic struck the whole army. Those in the camp and field and those in the outpost and raiding parties and the ground shook. It was a panic sent by God. This is something that couldn't have been caused by one person alone. This was the act of faith from one and God responded in a way that he couldn't have expected himself. When you trust in God, do you believe this? When you trust in God and you remain faithful to him, you might be surprised what he might do through you. Well, if that's how Jonathan responded to the situation, how did Saul respond to the same exact situation? Well, as we'll see, Saul didn't trust in God. Saul didn't put his faith in God. In fact, he relied on himself. So we're told in verse 2, what's he doing? As Jonathan goes and fights the Philistines with his armor-bearer, what does Saul do? Verse 2, he's hanging out with his soldiers under a tree. Verse 2, Saul was staying on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him were about 600 men. Now, humanly speaking, that's completely understandable, isn't it? His army is tiny compared to the Philistines, and his men don't even have swords and spears. But it's when we see Saul's action against the backdrop of Jonathan's faith do we see the faithlessness of Saul. Jonathan and Saul couldn't be more diametrically opposed. Their actions speak louder than words. Jonathan puts his trust in God and fights. Saul does nothing and hides. Saul, you see, didn't look beyond the situation. He looked at the huge Philistine army, but he didn't look to God. He looked at the situation, but he didn't believe God can save. He looked at his tiny army and he was left paralyzed. And so while Jonathan went into battle, Saul stayed as far away as possible from the battle line. While Jonathan went to fight a war, Saul lounged around comfortably under a tree, probably having high tea. Jonathan burned with hope, but Saul was filled with despair. And it's not until verse 20 when we're told the Philistines are in disarray that Saul responds. Saul musters an army. Finally, he decides to go to war. Verse 20. Then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their swords. Those Hebrews had been previously been with the Philistines, had gone up with them to their camp and went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. When all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. You see, here we have Saul, the king of Israel, the anointed of God, who was meant to lead the people of God to battle, to fight the enemies of God. But he doesn't. He only reacts. And he reacts only when he thinks he can win. His confidence, you see, didn't come from God and the one who can save, but from his sword, from his strategy. And so when the Philistines were in total confusion, Saul pounces and goes out to fight. He didn't trust God to save, but in his own strategy to win. And so the writer makes it clear that it wasn't Saul who saved Israel that day. But it was God. Verse 23. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel. And the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. Now, even though God saved Israel that day, that should have been a great course for celebration. But we're quickly told in the next verse, in 24, that the Israelites were distressed. Now, why would they be distressed if they had just won a great victory? Why would they be distressed if they just won the battle against all odds, well, it's because Saul made his troops take a silly oath. A silly oath to fast during a time of war. Verse 24. Now, the Israelites were in distress that day. So the Lord saves, but the Israelites were in distress. Because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, for I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. Now do you notice here the emphasis on my? This is all about Saul and nothing about God. He leaves God completely out of the picture. He makes no reference to God. He expresses no confidence in God. It's all about him and his enemies. And so he makes his soldiers fast because that's his strategy. He'll make his soldiers fast during a time of war, which is ludicrous to do, and turns a time of deliverance into a time of distress. It's such a terrible decision that his soldiers aren't just led to military exhaustion, but ritual transgression. Verse 31, that day... After the Israelites had struck down the Philistines from Michmash to Ajalon, they were exhausted. They pounced on the plunder and taking sheep, cattle and calves, they butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. Then someone said to Saul, Look, the men are sinning sinning against the Lord by eating meat that has blood in it. You have broken faith, he said. Roll a large stone over here at once. You see, when the soldiers were in the woods... They saw honey on the ground, the honey, so delicious, oozing. There's plenty of it. Yet they didn't eat it. They didn't even touch it, even though they were starving because of the silly oath that Saul had made them take. But as soon as the night falls, they're starving. So they don't prepare the meat properly. They don't drain the blood as required by the law. They rip straight into the plunder of sheep, cattle, and calves and eat the meat with its blood still in it. They've sinned against God. But Jonathan didn't actually know about this oath. He was busy fighting the Philistines. And so when when he saw the honey in the woods, he ate it. And when Saul finds out about it, he tries to have Jonathan executed in verse 44. How ludicrous is that? And if it wasn't for the the, the leaders of the army, the men that were there, Saul would have killed his own son, the saviour of Israel, who did what he should have done. Verse 45, But the men said to Saul, Should Jonathan die? He who has brought about this great deliverance in Israel, never, as surely as the Lord lives, not a hair of his head will fall on the ground, for he did this today with God's help. So the men rescued Jonathan, and he was not put to death. It took the men of Israel to recognize the work of God in the hands of Jonathan. They saw something that Saul himself couldn't even see. The passage then concludes with Saul's legacy as the first king of Israel. Even though he enjoyed some victories in verses 47-48, his bitter war with the Philistines had no end. 52, all the days of Saul, there was bitter war with the Philistines. And whenever Saul saw a mighty or brave man, he took him into his service. Now, today's passage shows us a difference between two men, the faithlessness of Saul and the faithfulness of Jonathan. And I wonder who you identify yourself with more. They faced the same situation, but their response couldn't be more diametrically opposed. And that was the same with the situation in Burma in the early 1800s. There were people looking at this God-forsaken country, a land of devout Buddhists and an emperor who wouldn't tolerate conversions. And some Christians looked at this situation and said that it was impermeable to Christian evangelism. It was up to Christians like that to give advice and up to Christians like that who would run mission organizations and churches. Burma might still not be a land with Christians, but a land with only Buddhists, a land with no hope of the resurrection at all. But the Judsons didn't listen to people like that. They listened to God. They had read their Bibles and they knew that God was saving a people for himself. People from every nation, tribe, language and tongue. They believed in the promises of God and saw a people needing to be saved. And so they went. They lived by faith and not by sight. And now more than 6% of the entire country confess Jesus as Lord. You see, Jonathan believed God can save Israel from their enemies. And so he went and fought against all odds. He won. And the Judson's believe that God can save the people of Burma from sin and death. And so they went and preached and against all odds, thousands upon thousands have now put their faith in Jesus and have the hope of eternal life. And so if you're, if you say you're a Christian and you say you have put your faith in Jesus in the God who saves, This passage today challenges us to reflect on that. Do you really believe? Do you have true faith? Do you truly believe that God is mighty to save? That he's mighty to save not just you and me, but the people we love around us, in our communities, in our neighbourhoods, in our workplaces and schools, in our families? Do you truly believe that God is mighty to save? There are so many people we know and love who do not yet know the love of Jesus and the hope of the resurrection. And when we look at our situation like that, are we more like Jonathan or are we more like Saul? Are we like the Christians who say these people around us are impermeable to Christian evangelism? The woke culture is overwhelming. We can't preach into it. Are you like the Christians who say that these people are impermeable to Christian evangelism, that there's no point even trying? Or are we like the Judsons who will persevere, who will believe in the promises of God, who really believe that God can save anyone, Anyone? Will we be like the Judsons and persevere for years and years, not just in prayer but in loving people? Not just in reading our Bible but but by caring for people? Not just meeting together as a community of believers but in sharing the gospel with the people around us? Do we really believe that God will save? That if we share the gospel, that God will save some? Because if we really believe it, then we would be preaching the gospel and sharing our lives with the lost, wouldn't we? And maybe if you reflect over the last few weeks, last few months, last few years, maybe if we haven't been doing that, then maybe we're more like sore than we realise. Maybe we have a faithless heart like Saul. But living out our faith isn't just an expressed in evangelism, is it? But in every area of our lives, every day of our lives. And so maybe we've been confronted by ill health, or conflict at work, or an estranged relationship. And when these things happen, does it drive us to God with hope and dependence or drive us to the ground with despair? In every situation of our lives, are we like Saul who lived without God in the picture and believing it's all up to us and our strategies and the oaths we take and our timing, but there's no repentance before God, no dependence on God, but only foolishness in the sight of God, like Saul. Or we, like Jonathan, who live out our faith and believe that God could do more than we can ask. And that doesn't necessarily mean being healed or being able to find an amicable resolution to every conflict or having perfectly reconciled relationships. We only have to look to Jesus to see that that's not the case. We only have to look to Jesus to see what it means to live by faith, to depend on God, to trust him in every hour of our lives and even in the darkest hours of our lives. When all is not right, will God be front and centre? Will we look beyond the situation and look to God? For when Jesus us on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, And he knew the cross was right before him. He was scared. He was terrified. His sweat was like blood dripping from his face. He had never been separated from his father ever before. And yet he before him was him going to the cross to be crucified. But worse than that, it was a time when he knew that the father's anger will be poured upon him. The anger that the father has to sin The sin of the whole world was going to be laid upon him and he would be separated from his father for the very first time. Of no fault of his own, but the fault of you and me. Yet Jesus didn't hide. Jesus didn't try and devise another strategy. He trusted in his father. He believed that God knew what he was doing. And so he cried out, not my will but yours be done. And moments later, soldiers took him away. Hours later, he was crucified and hung on a cross, naked to die for your sins and mine. And so let's look to Jesus not only as the model of faith, but as the one who perfectly trusted God to save and the one who lived the life we can and died the death we deserve. So that in him, to all who believe, will have the hope of eternal life. And friends, if you've been convicted today, that today you've realized for the first time that you're more like Saul than you are like Jonathan. That in heart, if you're true to yourself and you look deep in your hearts, that you're faithless. You try to deal with life and your situations with your own strategies, with by your own strength and not to God. then maybe today is the day that you need to put your faith in Jesus. To know not just of Jesus like us all knew of God, but to have a deep and personal relationship with the God who saves. Let today be the day that you put your trust in Jesus to save you from death and sin. And begin a new life today of living by faith and not by sight. So that when you meet your God, he will say, welcome home. Amen.